And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I begin almost every one of these recordings with this statement. You ready for it? You're in for a treat. You're in for a treat. Well, my friends, today you are absolutely in for a treat. You are about to hear this story that is so unbelievable, so unimaginable, that it's hard to fathom that this occurred. In the course of 100 days, more than 1 million people were killed for simply being Tutsis. You've heard about the violence that took place in Rwanda. Sometimes what those numbers and these stories cover up, though, are the individual stories of fear, of tragedy, of pain, of loss, and of overcoming, and of redemption, and of moving forward together as a community You're going to hear one such story today from our guest. Her name is Jean-Celestine Lacan. She is a remarkable overcomer. She was just a child when this tragedy befell her nation. And yet through her eyes and now today through her voice, you're going to hear about what she experienced. You're going to hear about what the country of Rwanda went through. You're going to hear about some of the causes of this, some of the consequences of this, and ultimately what it means for us going forward in our lives personally as a nation, and as nations. You'll hear in John's voice, joy. You'll hear courage. You'll hear her faithfulness. You'll hear her resiliency and perseverance. And my friends, I think you're going to hear also in her voice this unbelievable desire to not only forgive, but to live grace going forward. It's an incredible life story shared by a remarkable human being that I am fortunate and lucky enough to call my friend. And after you hear this episode, I think you're going to view her as a friend as well. So get ready, buckle up, grab a journal, open up your heart and your mind. You may want to grab some handkerchiefs because you will be needing it for this episode with my friend and now yours. Her name is Jean Celestine Lacan. Jean, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me, John. It is an honor uh, to be here uh, with you. You've inspired me. Uh, I'm just, I feel like it's, you've given me a gift. I'm very appreciative to be here. Well, right before we hit record, you were saying, John, I feel like I'm on with an old friend. And I, I said back to you, well, John, I am on with an old friend. I've read your book twice. I've listened to every podcast you've been on. I've watched you give a couple <laughs> presentations, both in front of audiences and also in front of churches. I love your voice, and I don't mean like the cadence. 
I mean, your heart, it's an incredible heart. It's an awesome honor to have you join our Live Inspired family. So let's roll up our sleeves a little bit and not talk yet about where you are today or your family today or what you're doing today. We'll come back to that in a moment. I want to go back a little bit farther. I want to go back to your childhood. Would you share with our listeners before April 7th, what was life like for you growing up as a little girl? Before April 7th, you know, my family was one thing, but I lived in this community where, you know, with my aunties and uncles, just in a mile of work. And it was this sense of like, just togetherness. Uh, And at home with mom and dad, they just were such an incredible people. You know, I, I usually say that for nine years, I felt like they gave me the love to carry me to this day. They gave me the gift to really like see other people as just God will see them. And I feel like that's just an incredible, um, you know, gift that they could have handed me over uh, before they pass on. They were Christians. Um, Mom was just full of joy. I remember going to a town with her and, you know, she would see poor people. She would give them what she had. And sometimes she would have layers of clothes. She would just like literally take up and give to the poor people. Even her going to the orphanages, just delivering baskets of like food or clothes to, you know, braid to these like kids. So they taught me how to love. Her and my father were grew up in a family of 10. So a lot of times was chaotic, of course, with, you know, all of us, 10 kids. I have one and I feel like he's one in four. Um, but there was this incredible love uh, and kindness that I felt like I just, I felt like I had the best life as a child. And yes, it was taken too soon for, you know, for me, but they gave me a, the ground, the foundation of who I was going to be in the world. It was just such a beautiful community. My aunties and uncles, you know, if I was mad at mom or, you know, dad, I would just go to uncle, grandpa's house and, uh, and just be there. And it was just incredible being in a place where I felt I, I was loved. I was mm-hmm. accepted with my flaws and with my you know, failures. I would celebrate the little things that I did, especially in school, which I felt like I was kind of like a rock star because they would just like give me so much praise as a kid. It was fun. It was a really fun time. You wrote quite a bit about not only your mom and your father, but your extended family. So you had a packed home compound, if you will, but you also had aunties and uncles and cousins and grannies and grandpas and neighbors who you considered family everywhere. Everywhere you turned, it's, you know, in the States, it's like it used to be where, where the door was unlocked and family and neighbors were everywhere. And it was an open door policy and it seemed idyllic. Did, did you see on the horizon a storm cloud approaching? Did you sense that as a little child? I did. I felt like there was this sort of like pullback uh, in, you know, because not only do we have our own family, you know, relatives, but we also had people who worked for my parents from the other, you know, ethnic groups who are part of our family. I mean, we'll have Christmas time together, Easter Sunday, they were welcome and their children. So I felt like I had this big family that you know, they were not relatives, but they were, they were not blood related, but they just were welcoming our home. So I love what you just say. It was just very like open policy, open door policy. Mm -hmm. At any given point, there was always like food cooking in our house, which I felt like mom was always feeding these kids uh, that were coming in these families uh, and sending 
goods out to those who didn't have much. Uh, it, it was just incredible. Well, with 10 kids, she probably was always cooking, just if only for her own little children. It was probably a full-time job. Uh, yes. Give us a little bit of the backstory of your nation and some of the disagreements that were right under the soil that maybe uh, maybe were not so clear to you as a nine-year-old. Uh, so before 1994, so Rwanda was actually way before, was actually colonized by first was Germany and then was Belgium. With that type of colonization, they actually divided the nation into ethnicities. So that we had the Hutus, we had the Tutsis and the Twa. The Hutus were 85% of the country and the Tutsis between 13 and 15% and the Hutus, the, the smallest percent, but they sort of, the, the Hutus would actually come together with the Hutus. So they made, a, they made up a bigger uh, population compared to my uh, ethnicity, the Tutsis. Around like before the 60s, the Tutsis, they led the country. They were, you know, the kings and queens of Rwanda. So they had, you know, having that leadership having the power around 1960s, then there was power shifting. So we had a, the first president, which was a Hutu uh, in the 60s. So there was a, this revolution where they took over. Before 1960s, they had, we called them like mini genocides. And it wasn't, you know, classified as, you know, genocide because they killed about 250,000 people that wasn't documented, five, you know, thousand people that wasn't documented as well. But they had previously, there was always these events, both in the 50s and the 60s, where they killed, uh, even in the 70s, with the, the Hutu majority killed the Tutsis. But in 1994, there was this uh, sense of being at home. And, and my parents were just, because of like the love that they had for humanity, yeah. they really avoided talking about the division. The, the Tutsis versus the, the Hutus or these characteristics that divided us, basically, which is just like, it, it boggles my mind to think that somebody will go after another human being because of the, the size of their nose, the, the limbs, the height, and um, all of that. But in 1994, uh, even prior to 1994, there was this tension, we've, we sensed it, but my parents would not want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about this division because I feel like in my heart that they actually wanted us to see the world as we have always seen it. That for a child was just, it's incredible to have parents who just want you to be in, in a society where you feel like you belong there, you're accepted, you are loved, other than just all these things that are not valuable, basically. Mm. So 1994, the genocide takes place. Um, I remember on April 7th, it was such a beautiful day, sunny. The night before, they actually they actually started killing a prior. Uh, there were so many people missing, but the plane goes down, and then the borders of Rwanda sealed. The military just like captures every border so that no tooth will be able to uh, exit. And on April 7th, uh, when we left, that was the last time I was actually with my family. You know, we, we just were in the bushes hiding with, happened to take off with my three-year-old twin sisters, um, Teddy and Teta. It was tough to be in the bushes hiding while being hunted by we three-year-old twin sisters. It was just incredibly, you know, tough. But I also feel like it was a blessing to be in such chaos 
because the you know children have a way of uh, bringing us back to what is important in that moment yes. or they were my distraction to not pay attention so much to what was happening around our home as you know bushes so it was again it was uh the genocide against the Tutsis, it was one of the fastest killing campaign in our modern history within three months. And to be exact, in 100 days, over 1 million people wiped away. And again, including my parents and aunties and uncles and some of my cousins, it was just horrific. Jean, I'm, I'm going to go back to the 7th and, and back to these events that, that sparked the genocide your father brings you into the room and, and this is, you know, you feel like you're all one large family and none of, none of this makes any sense to you. You're only nine years old and your dad, who is a mountain of a man and just overfilling with love, explains that uh, like the worst nightmare is becoming existence right at your front door and he's going to split the kids up into groups of three. W would you just share that like the tension and the conversation around your home the night that your dad explains to you what's happening and what he thinks we all should do next? The tension there was, can't even I can put it in words. It's almost like I avoided me personally. I was like, no, we're not saying bye. Like this, this is not it. And so our sweet parents, they, they say, well, we, we will be back here soon. We're just going for a few days. We, we should be back. We should be back soon. But there was also a sense in my heart, like maybe this is it maybe really this is it. But so we all own rights. We're freaking out, but we don't want to show it. My parents, I can tell my, my dad was this giant man and, you know, very tall. Um, but to see him just, you know, even breaking down and crying, that just like broke my spirit in that moment. Cause that, that's the first time actually I felt that my parents do not know what to do about this situation. And for a nine-year-old, for dad to show such emotion. And he had seen, he, he worked in a town, as he was coming home, he gets to see that this genocide, it wasn't like any other genocide. The previous genocide, they would kill you know, men by spare women and children. But this one, he saw bodies of young children in the streets. So that breaks his heart. And he comes home and that's what made him cry. And to see him cry, just for me as a kid, I was like, yeah, they lost it. Like they can't, even my parents cannot protect us. So as they divided us uh, in groups of three, I get to go to my auntie's uh, home, who of course later on sent, you know, her and her husband, who her, uh, her husband was a Hutu, they sent me away. And I look back now, John, and I go, I just know that God had a plan uh, because like, there was so much that could have happened to me in their home. Um, at the beginning, you know, at the, the beginning as a child, as I'm navigating through <laughs> from one bush to another, I was feeling like, okay, I can't believe my aunt. This is my mother's uh, yes. sister who just sent me away to be killed with these, you know, little babies. I didn't understand. And I, I uh, but I look back and go, you know, think that really God had a plan, you know, for us. The fact that I'm here, I just know that there's nothing I could have done as a nine-year-old to save myself. I was just, and, you know, prayer became one of the, one of my tools. When we get to uh, 
basically once everything has been taken away in that moment for me, once I didn't have mom and dad, I knew how to pray because I was, you know, I came from a, a Christian family, but I felt like my faith really just increased in minutes because I was like, I need to rely on God through all of this. I need guidance. I don't know what to do as a nine-year-old with these like three-year-old twin sisters. So I took kind of like mothery responsibility and I was like, but I need help, God. I just need you to guide me through this. But it was such incredible. Three months, it felt like the longest time of my life. In preparing for today, you know, reading your book, which was a masterpiece and listening to many of your talks and and then even doing some research around Rwanda and what, what led up to this massacre. And then thinking of you, this little girl, you, you're, you're an incredibly brilliant lady these days. And I can imagine you navigating anything these days. But at that time, on April 7th, 1994, you're nine. This morning, I had to jar loose my nine-year-old daughter to get her out of bed and get her dressed for school. And, you know, I'm not sure she could make a bowl of cereal completely by herself. That That's this nine-year-old. And then I look at my little daughter this morning, and then I think of you as a nine-year-old, uh, hugging your father goodbye, going to your auntie's home while you are navigating forward with two little three-year-olds, one in your left arm, the other one in your right arm, then being kicked out and then going into the bush and figuring out one way or another to hide from murderers for the next nine, a hundred days. Just take us through the process of a child leaving her auntie's home and venturing into a place she was completely unfamiliar with, nature lived in a beautiful home one of the things I kept thinking of I was like when is this going to be over so I can actually go back and sleep in my bed because one of the things that most people don't realize that April in Rwanda that's a month that it rains almost nonstop. you know so we are here in the bushes we're in the bushes hiding from one place to another hearing these voices of people being slaughtered outside of our bushes and again I just there's nothing that can prepare you for such chaos. But I felt like for me, when I felt like everything was just taken away, I really leaned more into prayers. I, I asked God for strength, for guidance, um, with my little twin sisters being in the bushes to really entertain them. Uh, my, my boy, my little guy, he's uh, four right now. And I can't even imagine just him, you know, hiding with him. We do hide and seek and he's the first one to show up and go like, hey, Tara, I'm here. Like, let me know. But these little three-year-old uh, at the beginning to really have that registered in their mind, it was just, there was no way. But then I started saying, you know, if you, know, you make noise, they're going to kill you. And they said, no, they kill bad people. They innocent, just like it will kick in, but which was, you know, in a way beautiful because they reminded this value just in turning in and being in that moment, appreciating the fact that we still have breath in our lungs. I just navigated through. We ate berries, if we found those. We ate grass. I try to teach them how to play little games to entertain them. Yeah. It was just incredible. But there's a moment where I felt like I um, father gets captured and I described, you know, how he, he gets killed as I was watching and I have this raging pain, just hate for these people, for what they just did to my dad. And I remember just with my little twin sisters, they're looking at me, they asked, saying, I want to go see daddy. I want to go see mom 
want to go back home three-year-olds they don't understand what just happened and i just felt like i lost it i felt defeated mm. in the middle of the genocide there was this like a drive that i need to be running so that i can actually you know protect my little sisters that there will be a way at the end of this you know genocide i remember standing in this road just feeling so lost so confused so defeated and i just listened to like this inner voice that says go to this place and i just kept going from one place to another and one of the prayers john that i had in the middle of the you know through the genocide was god blind these people that they might not see me that was just the prayer that i hung on to so i'm walking into these groups of people and they will go oh keep going another group is going to kill you or they'll have me sit there and go oh, we give you 15 minutes we'll kill you in 15 minutes and my prayer remained the same god blind them that they might not see me in these veins over and over again it just continued this way i was like hmm that's the prayer that i'm going to continue to pray blind them i'm here they can see me like blind them that they would just or they would just like literally fall asleep and I walk off with these little twins and so for me I felt like really God was helping me navigate through all of it as painful as it was I felt like I was able to sense his presence in such dark place such dark time uh, and I hang on I did hang on to that type of to his response I felt like there was a response being given to me which was just a surrender and I accepted that he was guiding me through this there was a moment too in the genocide where I felt that whatever happens at the end you've walked with me and a lot of times people pray for you know for change like I want this thing to think to change I want this outcome I want these results but we need to learn how to pray in a way that we say whatever happens god you're going to make it this moment okay the acceptance of what happens in life is a key life happens life is going to continue to happen but it's not necessarily what happens to us it's what we do with what happens uh, and how we try to navigate through it uh, and try to see the positive uh, in all of it gosh well you've uh, you've already begun opening it up your profound faithfulness to us and what you've overcome and some of the things you've celebrated subsequently with us you also shared about being a nine-year-old girl and watching your dad you know your hero this mountain of a man who was tougher than anybody else but also more genteel he was the peacemaker of your town he brought people together and unified them and brought about peace and you saw him get massacred in front of you and even before that john your uncle shares some news that is as agonizing for you to hear would would you just to take us back into the experience of Rwanda for a moment would you share what what your uncle shared and and then where you went afterwards so when my uh, uncle dies they come in and they killed my uncle with his uh, nine children and his wife and my mother was i saw her that was the lowest point i've ever seen her um just because she couldn't understand that human beings would actually come into a home and kill a fa- entire family she just couldn't understand so she had a a plane to go to the kigali which was at the uh, the capital city of rwanda 
to go and bury her family. And she, at the time she was pregnant with the, the little guy that I helped you know, deliver. And so to see my parents just, and even with that, they were still not able to condemn the other group. There was still this, they're just humans. They're just part of our human family. That type of like uh, love that they have for the community was just incredible. So my mother for you know April 7th, really, they planned to actually exit Rwanda. And my mother was pregnant and her excuse was, and I knew that she wanted to really give, uh, you know, a proper barrier to her family, to her brother and her and his kids. So she waited and her excuse was, I'm pregnant, we're gonna you know, have the baby and then we'll be able to go to a different country. Then the baby comes, but she still wasn't ready to go, to migrate, to, to flee the country. So we're hiding in the middle of the genocide. My uncle comes, one of my daddy's uh, brother comes into this place where I was hiding. And I do highlight this uh, man who actually took us in. In the genocide, there was just probably like two to three places that I went and people said, come on in. Otherwise they were just like, no, we don't wanna see you dying at our, uh, in our home. So that old man, he risked as a Hutu, he risked his life to just have us, he said, come on in, it was raining. My uh, uncle happens to be there and he's, he, he was shaking and he, he wasn't a hugger. He would just not give hugs and I love hugs. So I say, uncle, what happened? And he puts his he- hands on his head, he's shaking. You could tell he's you know, trying to communicate to me that something happened. And me as a nine-year-old, I'm going like, come on, I've seen it all. Like I've seen dead people in the streets. I've seen, you know, children just killed in the worst possible. There's nothing you can, you cannot shelter this mind. I've seen it. So I said, tell me. <laughs> I pressured him. And finally, he, he tells me that he has seen my mother's uh, body. And that just, again, another thing that broke my spirit. My mother is dead with that three-year-old, three-week-old little baby. That you helped deliver. These people had no mercy on anyone. So she's dead. And he tells me, this is where she is if you want to go. And the baby might be alive. But this is the place where they are if you want to go and retrieve, um, you know, this little guy. And I'm looking, thinking to myself, there's no way to keep an infant quiet. I can't keep the, the twins quiet. Gathered the courage to go because I felt like my mom and my, you know, my parents would have wanted me to actually save that little guy's life. I, you know, I got there and he he had been uh, slaughtered as well. And that's to say that no one in in the genocide was spared. Nobody. Young, old, even grandparents who could not get off their chair or their bed were just killed. Uh, and again, you think of a genocide in 100 days to be able to kill 1 million people. That's 10,000 people a day. Just to be clear to our listeners, and I hate to be so graphic, but this is the reality. This wasn't done with bombs and seldom not done with bullets and seldom done, done with grenades. Almost every death was with kitchen knives or machetes. This was gruesome, ugly, hand-to-hand violence done neighbor against neighbor. Your mother earlier, when you were speaking, you said, John, she just could not understand how, how evil like this could exist. 
in reading your book, neither can I, and in doing some research on the genocide, neither can I. So you are one who has survived this genocide. You lost your family, but you survived this. As you look back on that experience and the 100 days and the recovery afterwards and the abuse that you went through, and we may or may not have time to unpack parts of that, but as you look back on those 100 days, can you explain to us that kind of e evil, the, the kind of evil that would allow someone to walk into someone else's home, a neighbor's home, and kill a child, and then walk into a bedroom and kill a grandmother who's just laying there? Like, I, Help me understand where this evil comes from. And I, I still don't have the answer. I can't, I just still don't understand. Even up to this day, uh, I cannot explain. Uh, and one of the things I tell people that you know, when we have questions like the whys, the hows, a lot of times there's no response. There's no, and I, I, I don't like to say it this way, but you know, a lot of people will say, you know, it's, there's a reason. There's reason to things to happen. And a lot of things, a lot of times, there's no reason you can give to, you can, there's no reason anyone can give me that, that somebody will have in their right mind the power to go kill another being and somehow feel right. I would encourage, you know, your listeners, John, to just really not ask why a lot of, you know, for some things. There's some things that you will never find because of this. Even if God gave you the, the reason behind whatever event, you won't take it in. We cannot take it in. We cannot explain that kind of evil. For me, I asked why, I asked how, and I find myself asking those questions and I, I felt like I was digging a hole for myself, a grave for myself, the more I asked the why, the how. And so it's, um, there are some things that we will never find the answer, but we can really choose to leave a legacy of peace to honor those we've lost. And that's what I chose to do. One of the things my parents used to do is we'll come home we had a, at the table uh, and it was tradition. Every night we, we sit together, we, we talk about the things we were grateful for. We think about, we talk about the things that were not okay as a kid. I fought with somebody at school or so-and-so called me this name or did something, you know, that sort of like expression, uh, the ability to, to come in a place of love and be able to express taught me so much that if we're not expressing how we feel, we are depressing or th there'll be depression because we're not able to express how we feel. And uh, my sweet auntie, the one uh, from Washington State, the family that took me in, uh, I remember her telling me, find at least two people that you can speak to about whatever that is happening in your life, whether it's painful events, just because, you know, again, there's COVID happening and there's uh, so much uh, happening in our, in our world right now, to find at least two good friends that you can communicate to. And again, I say that because uh, sometimes we just don't have answers to why things happen in the world. And the genocide is one of them. I will never be able to explain. There's a man who um, uh, just recently that I was listening to in the genocide who said that he killed over 400 men, women, and children, 400. To have that type of a heart, there's no way for anyone who would be able to explain what goes in his mind. But one of the things I've seen, John, in, in the genocide was people would say, the, the, those who participated, the perpetrators would say, once they killed one person, 
it was almost like they were thirsty for blood. So there were just this drive to go and kill more. The man who uh, attempted to kill me in the uh, refugee camp, he had the same type of uh, mentality, but this man had this urge to really spill blood that I cannot, I cannot understand, even though that I've been hurt to that level of pain. There's nothing in, my, in, in me that wishes evil on anyone. You know, I cannot escape from that. So I will not be able to sleep. So yeah, I don't know how. I don't know how and why. Uh, but the propaganda campaign was really part of it. They really incited uh, that the Tutsis were the cockroaches, that we were the snakes. It's similar to what happened to uh, in the Jewish uh, Holocaust, to really dehumanize us to a level where we are no longer human. Uh, and to some people, and I, I tell people that our words have such an impact and we just don't realize how people take what we say and put it in action. We just have to be very careful. Well said. You've been sharing a lot about not being fully able to understand evil. You know, I, clearly it, it's tied to evil. It's tied to dehumanizing your brothers and sisters who uh, look or act or worship or vote differently than you. That's part of this. Uh, there's a bloodthirst that once you do something once, it's easier to do it a second and a third and a fourth and a hundredth and a four hundredth time. That's all part of it. So there's a lot of evil in the story. And yet, as I read through yours, it's packed with miracle upon miracle. It's like shocking gifts that show up in your life as you're moving forward. <laughs> I could ask 50 questions around it right now, but I think my favorite, you had almost like a guardian angel type experience show up near the end of the 100 days. You are, again, certain to be murdered. There's just no getting around at this time, and you're praying for peace, and you're praying for safety, and then you hear the voice of someone who claims you. Would you share that story with our listeners? John, that part of my story moves me uh, because, like you said, she was my guardian angel. Here I am in the refugee camp. The perpetrator, those who participated in the genocide, they get to know that there was a new government, the Tutsi government, coming in, and they were afraid of uh, retribution because of what they've done. And so they migrating into different countries around Rwanda. And so this man, I get into his home and he basically uh, took me in as, I'm going to describe it as a sex slave, nice. takes me in and takes me into a Congo, into a new country, flees the country with me. Then before we get into the Congo, even in the refugee camp, as people were migrating, we have Tutsis like myself who ended up in the refugee camp. They're still hunting for the people who looked like me, the Tutsis uh, in those refugee camp. And they, uh, this event, they find me and I'm lined up with, you know, among others. So they killed every single person right in front of me. And I'm standing, I'm still praying. I said, God, I don't think you brought me this far that I would die here. I don't think you saved me for all these months to die here. You know, of course, they threw me right on the ground like everybody else. They were uh, going to, they raised their machetes in clubs. Um, and I hear this woman in the crowd 
I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people. I hear this woman screaming, saying, stop, stop, this is my child, that's my daughter. And in my mind, I'm thinking that this woman is going to get there and look at me while I was on the ground and realize that I wasn't her daughter. I was thinking that she lost her child. But she weaves herself through this crowd of people. The men are confused. I am confused, but I'm, I'm still on the ground. She comes in, she looks at me. And she said, that's my child, stop. I had no idea who she was. At this point, I know my mom is dead. But she claims me and these men takes me, they took me away from her. They took her away from, you know, to the right side and I'm on the left side, far away from where we cannot hear each other's conversation. They ask her a series of questions. And surprisingly, before the genocide, so people who would actually, like the way we carry our uh, driver's license in Rwanda, you have to carry the, you know, your racial identity card. They asked me my age, my full name, where I was born, all of those details I gave it to them. That's exactly what was written in her identity, racial identity card. So these men, as angry as they were with blood you know, on, on their clothes, they threw me right back in her arms. And as I was walking with this woman, beautiful, flawless, I wanted to ask her who she was. I'm dying just to know who she is. She holds my hand, we're walking away, and I look back to, uh, before I look back, she actually, she said, my child, go with these people, I'll be with you, I'll protect you. And I look back, her and I, we look back to see those other people who were behind me being killed. I feel her hand release from mine, and she was gone. So John, I, those words of I'll be with you, and of course, I will go through life, but I, I believe that God was with me. I didn't want to describe her as an angel, but I feel like in that moment, really God brought an angel to save me once more, um, one more time. I, I went, people who might not know this, I went, I got captured or came to a place where I was going to be killed more than 200 times. So that was God just showing up one more time. For our listeners who do not have as strong a faith as you, some might be wondering, well, where was God for the lady next to you or the child next to you on the other side or for the other 1 million innocent children, women, and men who were slaughtered and machete to death. When you think through the perspective of faith from that lens, like, well, what, I'm sure everybody was praying. Why wasn't God there for them? How do you how do you reconcile that? Just personally, what, when you start asking the why questions, why me, Lord? How do you respond? I, that, that's a very good question. And I've had many survivors actually ask me the same question. And to that, I don't really have an answer except that I, I can say this. God has, has given us the free will as people to do good in the world, but also those who choose the opposite. He loves them the same way he loves me and you. So because we have the free will, uh, people chose to kill those other people. And for me, I usually go back and go, I could have been just like a lot of people who gone through the same experience. 
and choose to be bitter about what I've gone through. But I, because I felt like God was walking with me through all that experience, and I can tell people this, I was praying for my sweet father. I loved, I don't think I loved anybody in the world the same way I loved my dad. My dad was, was just my hero, the sweetest man. And as I, I, I watched them and I get emotional about this, as I watched these men, like really like, you know, engulf him in a circle, it, I, I started praying and I was angry once I saw what happened to him. So to that, I cannot explain. Like, how, how do I explain God? I, I just feel like God has, um, has given us the free will to do the right thing. But, uh, you know, people choose to do, you know, they have a choice to also commit crimes like they did in the genocide. Uh, but I can tell you this, John, people who, like myself, and I, maybe I should speak for myself, the fact that I've gone through this experience, gone through what the worst the world has to offer and have the kind of peace that I have, I cannot credit that to uh, my uh, EMDR. I'm a big fan. Or I'm, my husband and I, we're both supporters of, we're not ashamed of uh, having the help, professional help from our mental health uh, professionals. We advocate for it. But there's not enough medication anyone could have given me. There is enough, not enough counseling I could have done to get the peace that I have today. God can use our brokenness to into something beautiful. We can hand over our ashes, our brokenness to him, and he can use it for his glory. I look at my life and go, like when I'm speaking through, you know, whether it's uh, churches or universities or uh, high schools, I get so many children who are broken in their own homes. They're so stuck. They don't know what to do with what happened to them. And I, I wish there was a magic pill that I can say, take this and you'll be okay. For me, it was like turning back to God that really allowed me to feel joy, to feel peace. So I get trafficked into, you know, Congo. I come back, John, come back. You know, a lot of times when we're running through events in life, we don't realize how they have affected us mentally. So I'm running, I survived the genocide. I'm back in, in Rwanda. The genocide took, you know, 100 days. For me, I came back to Rwanda. I left April 7th, so I'm coming back December. So that was like a good six months away from, you know, home. I get back and I go into this little um, village where we lived in my hometown. My home is decimated. Uh, it's burned. Uh, the walls, there's one wall hanging. My aunties and uncles, are, they, they're gone, they're wiped out. And I go into the city and there's just bullet holes in the buildings. The, the roads are just uh, demolished. It looks like as if the, the Hutu government want, wanted to really turn this country upside down. And it was there in that moment that I felt like I felt like as if I was descending into a dark dungeon and I sunk into depression. I felt like there was no way out. And it is when we hit rock bottom, for me at least, like when I felt like I hit rock bottom and there's no way 
no way out except to forgive. I, I'm having this conversation with God because I'm just, I'm bitter, I am angry. I am, there was just so much hate in my heart of this, for these people. And I knew there were two ways. If you hit, you know, rock bottom, you either, you know, dust up and get up and keep going or you remain there. And for me, I was like, you know, I've been here for too long and, and this anger and this bitterness is just killing me physically and mentally. I felt like God was sitting across from where I was. And I said, God, I don't think you saved me for all these months. I didn't go through all this pain so I can come back and live such hatred life, such bitter life. One of my favorite, um, you know, hero, Nelson Mandela, and I'm not going to quote him. I probably, you know, paraphrase this. He says, as he would, you know, he was in prison for 27 years for injustices and, you know, apartheid in uh, South Africa. But as he was free exiting, as he, he said, as I was exiting towards the freedom, the gate to my freedom, I knew that if I did not leave the bitterness, I would still be a prison, in prison. So for me, I was free. I had survived. But I, I felt like I wasn't living. As I'm having this conversation with God, I know you created me for much more than justice. And this is not fun. <laughs> and I hear this voice, John, that says to me, forgive them as soft as that, just forgive them. And for a minute, I just looked confused because I was like, how? How can I forgive such yes. you know, yes. pain, such act? How can I forgive these people? God said that to me again. He said, forgive them. I got this courage to say, I forgave you for months you hunted for me to kill me. I forgave you for hounding me and raping me. I forgave you for the fact that I am orphan on the street. I forgave you for all those innocent lives that you've taken away. There was just this freedom in my heart and God challenged me afterwards. He said, pray and bless them. And I know once we've been hurt by people, the last thing you want to do is pray for them. Right. When I prayed for these people, not to wish them evil, but wish them blessings, I really felt there was, I usually describe this feeling. I felt like I was just soaring up in the sky, just like an eagle, free, with so much joy in my heart, with so much freedom in, in, my, you know, in my head. That type of forgiveness is, it, it brings like this sense of like fearless. And so I felt like the, the doors of opportunity, although I was still orphan and young and incapable and helpless, I felt like I, I had hope. I felt like the possibilities were just open to me. That my head was, it was just clear, uh, like ways, like I was like, I can do everything else I put my mind into because my mind was free. And so one of the things I, you know, maybe the question I'll have for your audience, John, who do you have to forgive? Right. Really, who do you have to forgive? Because unforgiveness really does so much damage to our bodies that we cannot imagine. Um, and so it's a, it has been such a game changer for me. And my prayer for everybody is to really and there's this misconception that when we forgive, somehow we're letting the person who have harmed us, we're letting them off the hook. 
And the truth is, no, you're giving yourself a gift. If you want to give yourself the best gift, forgive somebody who hurt you. John, we could spend at least an hour talking only about forgiveness. We could spend an hour at least talking about your journey from the refugee camp back into your country, back into your community, back into your town, back toward forgiveness and reconciliation and movement forward toward joy and possibility and abundance in life. It's, it's an epic story. I think there's a couple of bows that I want to begin tying down on this story, though. One is as you move back into your community, you hear a name that is awfully familiar to you. It's the name of one of your family members. Would you take us, uh, you know, fast forward the tape just a little bit and talk about um, a chance run in at an orphanage with a little woman that you knew very well? My twin sister, John, she was, and she still is, such a big heart human being that I've ever made in life. And I was grateful to have her as as a twin because she fought every battle. She was strong enough. <laughs> and um, but I get back into the you know coming back from Congo, run away, get back to Rwanda, and I go to this orphanage home. I hear somebody saying Jeanette, that's her name. And my heart, like you know, in the middle of the genocide, I felt like I had to sort of like grieve her life in a way because I didn't want to be heartbroken just in case she didn't, you know, didn't make it. You know, students push her through. She's, we're in the middle of the road. The students push her through to come forward. And I see her. She thinks I'm a ghost. I think she's a ghost because I think just like her, she had mourned my life as if I was dead because I was away for, uh, she didn't know whether I made it or not. But she comes in and she shows me my other siblings who had survived. And I see this as a, it's such a blessing, John, that there are families that I actually lived nearby who have one human, you know, one family member who survived. So I get into this orphanage home. My twin sister brings my siblings, our other siblings who had survived. And that, to me, there was so much joy. There's, you know, the, up to this day, they give me a sense of purpose. Uh, in the orphanage, there were so many children who have, um, were about, about 70% of, or, you know, 75,000 orphans in Rwanda after the genocide. But the orphanage home couldn't take me in just because they are, uh, they were full. They had just so little resources. They were off their capacity uh, as too many children that can take in. So my sister finds me this job and uh, at 10 years old. And I go, I, I, when I say bye to her, she, she looks sad. And I said, you know what? God is going to make this work for us. I'm hopeful. And knowing that I had survived, that I had a purpose, a lot of times we lose. If we lose hope, we are doomed, basically. So I held on to the hope that I will do the best I can with all the little powers that you know, my 10-year-old you know, had to make sure that these kids would also you know, have a better chance to life. As a nation... How has Rwanda begun to reconcile the profound tragedy of 1994, the, the murder of a million of its innocent citizens? It, it, I think we can imagine there are people in the world like you who are somehow wildly connected to God and open to forgiveness and grace. And we, we, we just are in awe of that. We also recognize, uh, and then there's a neighbor of yours, 
and then there's your sister and then there's a few others who survived and then there's a few murders like and somehow we got to figure out how do we do life together after what what just happened so as a, as a nation looking back on 1994 what what, what have you learned I've learned that we, we just have, uh, there's so much that we have in common than what we fight over. And Rwanda is such an example for the rest of the world because, you know, when you think about even like the military that came into the country, they had guns, they have, you know, grenades. And these are the people who could have like literally turned on the, you know, the people who uh, have participated in the genocide. but. The president tells, you know, the, the current president tells these people that these people will go through justice in a right way, which will be the some of them served, you know, their terms in, you know, in prison and they'll come forward. So they have this uh, uh, system where uh, peace and reconciliation, reconciliation, so peace and reconciliation in Rwanda at a grassroots, uh, similar to what happened in uh, South Africa. You have the people who have participated in the genocide who come forward and ask for forgiveness. And a lot of times you have, you know, members of the family, let's say somebody killed, you know, who killed my family. If I show up there, they will be speaking right directly to me and saying, forgive me that I killed your family. And this is where I throw their bodies. And I can either choose to forgive them or I can choose to just let the government just let these people out of the you know prison. But people are living side by side in Rwanda. I'm not saying everybody has forgiven, but um, people are living side by side. You still have people who have, you know, there's no way to get in the mind to say it that even though you know somebody has been in prison, that they they some people feel like they have already served their term, therefore no questions asked, no responsibility, no remorse uh, whatsoever. But there's some people who come forward really sincere asking for forgiveness. It was just completely demolished as a country. And to come back to where people are living side by side, uh, there's no longer ethnicity, which is a good thing. So we don't call ourselves the Tutsis, the Hutus. The, nobody cares identity card that has <laughs> the ethnicity uh, in it, their race. Um, so what we can learn here in this story, I, I, I think we really have so much in common than people think that we don't. Uh, I, I'm teaching my husband and I, we're teaching our son to really like, walk the aisle and you know i love children because like the way they love they don't see color they don't see barrier they don't see race they don't see any of that so if we can be true like children it will be it'll be such a great world that we have here uh, and i also oh i've always imagined what heaven is going to look like for people who consider themselves as christians i feel like heaven is just going to be such a beautiful, colorful, all of us just existing. So while we coexist here in the world, we just have to love one another and appreciate one another. I feel like we bring so much beauty in the world with our differences, with our you know, with languages, religion. We just have to love. Mm. This sounds familiar. I, I think I heard this somewhere uh, from from scripture. So I, I think I'm hearing echoes of Sunday school church and I'm, I'm grateful for <laughs> I'm also hearing from a woman who at age eight or nine, when you were in school, they had you line up 
and they put one, you know, all, all the Tutsis on one side and Hutu on the other. And here is this one girl. Everyone else knew exactly where to go because they knew their identity. And you did not know on which side of the aisle you should go because you had never been told what your ethnicity was because to your mom and dad, it didn't matter. And your mother said so beautifully, what? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. You are children of God. And I worry as we move forward as a nation and as nations that we are turning more toward identity politics and, and really identifying with our ethnicity far more than as our brothers and sisters keepers and how we can move forward together as one, regardless or maybe because of our differences. I think your mother taught you that and it's a lesson that you you learned well and that you are modeling beautifully today. You, you, you survived this time. I wish we had more time because we could talk about you walking in Spokane and some some dude crossing the street in awe of this beautiful lady walking down the other side. We'll, we'll come back and talk about Paul some other time. Uh, you marry, you fall in love. This man's got his own survivor story. It unites you, it heals you. I really look forward to coming back and we'll have that conversation. Maybe the two of you can have it with me. Yes. Today, though, you're not only an author, you're also part of a movement. Would you describe what you're doing for the orphans? You know, we didn't really want my life experience to be just a broken story that we tell, like, you know, these horrific things happening to me. Uh, we wanted to use the story to touch people, you know, children's life, vulnerable people in our, you know, in our world. So we have 1 million orphans, um, nonprofit, and we feeding kids, we, you know, care for their medical, you know, needs, and we're buying uniforms, and we're putting them in schools. Uh, we've uh, supported kids in Burundi. So the 1 million orphan, actually, the idea is that because of one million, over 1 million people did, we want to be able to impact at least 1 million orphans in the world. So, and again, we have uh, our full-time job. We still, you know, when people purchase the book, they, you know, the proceeds go to, some of the proceeds go towards uh, these needs for these children, uh, but we cannot do it alone. Uh, we need people to, you know, give in and be the heroes of these children uh, because I feel like really once we love on them, they're likely to go out in the world and be able to love somebody else. They're going to be able to love their neighbor. Uh, and that's the kind of love, that's the kind of legacy that we want to leave behind for a generation that care for each other. Tell us the name of a, a site that we can learn more about the work that you're doing. So if you go to a voice in the darkness.org planning to go to Burundi to actually uh, teach our children how to raise a uh, fish so they can have some type of uh, you know protein and be able to sell and help themselves as well because we want to you know create uh, sustainable resources for them that those kids will be able to really go on without just depending on us so we wanted to over the summer we're planning to go and help them uh, have like su some sustainable resources for themselves but we didn't go so we're hoping you know things are getting better you know with the vaccine so hopefully uh near future maybe 2022 2023 uh we'll be able to go um but we would appreciate people who come in and you know, if they want to donate, if they want to buy a book, actually, if they buy the book directly from my website, we get to give much more versus if they buy the book on Amazon. 
Yes. You know how that is, John. <laughs> I do. Let me just encourage it. A voice in the darkness.org. Go there. Don't go to the other site. I forget the name of it that John just mentioned. Go to a voice in the darkness.org. And we'll also have links to it, of course, in our show notes. John, we, we ask all of our guests seven questions as we tie the show together. And they're called the Live Inspired Seven. Before we get there, I recognize as you do that there are so many people right now who are listening to your story who themselves are struggling. And they may not have witnessed a genocide. They may not have endured that kind of pain. They may not have witnessed their father's murder and stumbled across their mother's body and the body of the little brother they helped deliver just three weeks earlier. But there's a lot of struggle out there right now. The struggles financially and relationally and spiritually and just the lack of hope that many feel right now. So as we get ready to... Um, to go into the Live Inspired 7, what, what is some encouragement you might offer to one of our listeners right now who just feels that that light of hope is beginning to fade in their life? I would say just to be hopeful. There's nothing in the world that happens that doesn't have a transition. Just if we hold on long enough, the light is at the end of the tunnel. I really know it. I really sense it. It's, you know, a lot of times it's easy said than done. One of the things that I do myself is to really create every morning. I get up and have uh, a list of at least five things that I'm grateful for. And that I, I, I think it gets me into, it kind of works into my day. Uh, so I would encourage that somebody who is struggling through this uh, tough time that we're going through to really have a list of things that you're grateful for, your grateful list of things, your gratitude list doesn't have to be big things. It could be as simple as a cup of coffee. It could be as simple as you were able to wake up and you have, you know, air in your lungs. You, you're able to have your, you know, you have your family, you have your, you know, some food in the fridge, um, whether it's much or not a whole lot. Just have gratitude. It's, it's a game changer for me. Uh, we, we are in the world. Life is going to be happening. And, uh, but remain hopeful. Remaining hopeful is a key. Yes, indeed. So, Jean, seven questions as we put a, button up our conversation. The first one is, in addition to your beautiful book, A Voice in the Darkness, I'm going to hold it up right now for our viewers to see. It's an awesome cover written by a remarkable lady and her husband. In addition to that book, what's another book that you found deeply meaningful to you in your life? So, John, I recently, a sweet friend of mine, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Pam, she actually gave me a gift. The book is called, in fact, The Gift. <laughs> so um, this book, I just it's actually written by uh, Dr. Uh, Edith Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she was sent into Auschwitz when she was a teenager. And the subtitle of the book is actually 12 Lessons That Could Save Your Life. I found it so helpful. There's uh, two things out of those 12 lessons. One is how we, uh, to deal with uh, grief and shame. And the other point in there that she highlights is how do we find courage when we have lost hope? So our listeners, I think the, um, the gift is such an incredible uh, book and also written by a survivor that I think it's important. It's a good read. It's, and it's also small too. So I've heard that you, in some regards, almost feel as if that a, a baton is being passed from a grain dying 
survivor group, the Holocaust survivors into now the Rwanda survivors. And it's a, it's a fraternity no one would have chosen, but it's one that you've embraced because you want to make sure that these stories do not fade out of, out of our consciousness, that we remember that evil does exist, but that grace and love indeed do overcome it. So I'm not at all surprised to know that one of the books that you love is the, the, the Gift. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl before April 7th, 1994, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? God, that's a good one. I, I think it will be extreme mental flexibility. And I say that because as we get older, we tend to be, forgive me, I don't know if I have a better term to use. We, we tend to be a little bit rigid. Uh, we don't, you know, flexibility is not as applicable as it should. But when we learn to be flexible, we'd actually learn how to, we learn to adapt to situation, to circumstances as they arise. So that's one I feel like I wish I had more of to be flexible, to just kind of play it off and just not to say like, you know, life didn't happen, but to really be able to accept whatever that is happening, you know, because pain is going to come in our lives, but to really embrace that we can adapt to those changes as they are happening in our lives. I think it's important. If your home caught fire and your beautiful son and husband are out safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you come racing back outside with? My husband is an album with his little baby pictures, which we haven't put it on a digital. And my son is a photos of the little things that he painted for us. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I hope in the album somewhere you also have pictures of you as a little girl, five foot. I think in one of the pictures you're wearing a flower girl outfit a couple of years before the genocide. And there's a picture of some of your siblings and your home. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that some of those pictures of those memories of the good days survived. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who, who would you want to be seated next to? That sweet woman who saved me, uh, saved my life at the river, um, I think it would be incredible to just kind of run and give her a hug and thank her because I don't think I had a chance to really say thank you for the gift of, you know, for, for saving my life and also for the reassurance of um, that she'll be with me spiritually. But I would love to see that physical body to just really to embrace her. You know, one day your son will read your book and be blown away by his mother's courage and faithfulness. And he'll come into that story, I think, and at some point approach you and say, mom, who was she? Who, who do you think that lady actually was? When, when he looks into your eyes with that sweet little face of his, how will you respond? Who was that woman? I think it just really God sent me uh, a, a guardian angel. I feel like there was the way she was, like she was, the description they gave these like beautiful, you know, tall women, that she was just flawless and I've never seen her. And I remember just like running in this, you know, among these thousands of people searching for her and I couldn't find her. I feel like she was just my, you know, guardian angel. And I think I would explain 
to him just that way. Uh, he'll probably ask, what, what is a guardian angel? Um, I feel like I have one. I feel like she is that woman, uh, but it would be lovely to really have that encounter because she came in a human body and um, kind of similar to Jesus, just as he arrived on this you know, earth to see, to be with us. Um, so yeah, I would love to have a, a conversation with her. I think you will one day. Uh, and until then, remember that she'll be with you. Uh, so that's good news. <laughs> What's the best advice that she or your mother, or your father, or one of your siblings, or anyone else along the journey has ever given you. So what's the best advice you've ever received? So John, it would be the, my father used to say that to envision what we wanted to be in the world. And this is something that I usually share with young people too. Envision what you wanna be in the world and the kind of impact and the people you're going to have an impact on. You, my friend, had a wildly difficult start to your life, the first 18 or so years. The, the next question is about year 20. So now with even more wisdom, looking back to that 20-year-old, what advice would you give yourself uh, as a 20-year-old? What, what encouragement would you whisper into your ear? I'll give you what my husband usually gives me. He says, love yourself, because when you love yourself, whether you, you, lo you know, love your imperfection, your failure, your success, the pain, your scars, it's when we love ourselves that we can also go out and love other people. So that love more, I think that's it. I can't imagine anyone loving more than Jean, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, the final question for this lover of individuals, even those who have done some of the worst evils in society. It's an incredible story of forgiveness. Jean Lequin, it has been said that all great survivors and overcomers and spiritual sojourners and mothers and daughters and leaders and examples can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Mine will read that I survived and I'm fully living to have an impact in the world. Jean, you have indeed survived and surviving is just the beginning of your journey forward. You have chosen after surviving to thrive. You're a brilliant example. You are someone that I look up to and I'm honored that you shared part of your story, a small part of your story with our listeners and viewers today. For the full story, let me encourage all the listeners to go to our landing page on the website or you can go directly to avoiceinthedarkness.org and you can read a story about a survivor and a thriver that will inspire you that regardless of what you face today, that the foundation is still firm and the best days remain in front of us. John, I wanna thank you for again, being with us today. Thank you so much, John, for having me on. God bless you. Yes, indeed, so have you. My friends, that is John Celestine, like Ken. I am John O'Leary and today is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. 
They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to keeleycompanies.com.